Boy, that was awful. I mean, I'm just saying, if no, 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 no. If my self-worth was tied to the amount of applause in that moment, I'd go home and jump off a bridge. Now, my name is Mike. I want to welcome you here. We got a couple of house cleeping, a couple of housekeeping things we got to do because I haven't seen you for uh, since last year. And uh, I was up in Irvine last week trying to remind them that you can be good looking and a Bible teacher all at the same time. Sometimes they need reminding up there. Uh, secondly, uh, I, I am so glad Tim Tebow lost last night. And let me tell you why. Yeah, yeah. No, no. Hey, I'm pro Jesus. Shut up. But I'm sick of my wife committing adultery in her heart every time he's on. I mean, seriously, here's, so I call her on, I'm like, honey, you've never been, you've never been into football before. And, and she says, I like the shape of his arms. And, and I say, seriously, and I say, I got shape, I got shape. I mean, I, what's wrong with this shape? Pear is a shape too. And, and so I'm thrilled. He's done. I'm thrilled. I get my wife back. <laughs> Sisters, we don't want you involved in football. All right? Just leave us alone. Um, the third thing uh, that I want to let you know about, did anyone notice we have a wall here? Did anybody notice that? I'm just kind of, I kind of, I'm kind of blind to it until I open my eyes and then I see a wall. Uh, and, and I just want to, I want to affirm you because Brian said we're a community that really seeks to be generous and it's phenomenal. Uh, we, if you remember, I think last May we had a great problem. We were running out of space. And so we said, what would it cost to take the wall down? They said a million and a half dollars, which would have been my salary for a year. And I said, I'm not giving that up. <laughs> and, and it said it was a million and a half dollars. And, and we'd have to vacate the premises for like five months. And we said, well, that's a problem. How much would it cost to take only part of the wall out? $300,000. We said, we'll do that. And so we have a funky wall. But here's the, the story is this. So we went to you guys and said, hey, are you in for $300,000? So you, you pledged $340,000, which was a magnificent thing. And then I just saw, and I saw it this week, um, the year-end giving for this whole project was $394,000. So somebody, somebody gave a little extra. And so I was thrilled with that. And here's the reason. Because that, all that is is a sign of ownership. That's all that is. We're, we don't, we're not folks that want to manipulate or guilt people or any of those sorts of things. But, I mean, seriously, that level of generosity is allowing us to build a space for the junior hires upstairs because right now they meet outside in a tent. And so I just want to say thank you. That is outstanding and amazing. And praise Jesus for you and praise Jesus for your generosity. We always want to say uh, to people that if Jesus' self-worth was measured... By that level of, I don't know, <laughs> I'm going to stop that whole line of thinking. Okay, now uh, uh, we are going to get preaching. I just, you know, I, I miss, I've missed you. And so we're going to get preaching, but here's the deal. I have a confession I need to make before we get started. I hate math. I hate it. My wife is a math teacher. She teaches junior high math, which is like the worst of everything, all in one vocation. And, and... She, and so when we were dating, I used to interrupt her class. I'd walk into her class and I'd just say, when are we ever going to use this? I'd ask that question. And, 
Isn't that the perpetual when you're learning algebra? By the way, if you need a Bible, let one of our ushers know. Uh, they're handing them out right now. And you'll need one in just a few moments after I get, be- beating, after I get done beating up on math. But, and so I would teach the boys poetry. Right in the middle of algebra, I'd say, listen, if you want a useful skill, write poetry to girls. Because <laughs> this, marry somebody that knows math. You don't have to know it yourself. And, and so... But I've discovered, I've discovered a new kind of math that I really like. So Mondo, fire up the PowerPoint for the new math. All right, so somebody came up with these. This is life math. First impression equals everything you figure out about the person later minus later. That's funny. Okay, moderate applause. Maturity, the things you used to do minus the things you used to do. Living proof of that truth. This is one of my favorite ones. What I think happened divided by what really happened. Next, midlife crisis, DeVries. What I want to do divided by what I've done, plus or minus a new car. (laughs) Life insurance equals, God forbid, plus jackpot. Next, crazy equals talking to oneself minus... Cell phone and earpiece. (laughs) Credit card, I can't afford it, minus I can't afford it, equals credit card. Next. And then and then this is this is this is the story of my life here. Disappointment equals expectation divided by reality. Now, math, how do they take math and turn it into real life? How do they do that in junior high math? Story problems, that's right. So the only way to make math worse is by doing story problems. And what story problems do is they, they're designed to take these abstract concepts and, and to put them into real life. And so you get a train traveling from Quebec at 65 kilometers per hour. When will it arrive? If, I, mean, it, I mean, it's just horrible stuff. The parables of Jesus are the story problems of philosophy and religion and morality and ethics. In other words, the parables of Jesus, what we're looking at through this series, those are the story problems. Those are designed to take abstract concepts and bring them into real life. Jesus, in the section we're looking at, is asked, and I'm sorry about my voice, I'm perfectly healthy, even though I sound like a Sasquatch. I don't I don't know what's going on. It's really, I went to the ENT. You know what that is? Ear, nose, and throat person. And they, and they stick a camera up your nose and down your throat. It was very unpleasant. And, and, and he said, I think you have reflux. And I'm like, I don't get heartburn at all. And he said, no, it's when you sleep. And so there's some sort of vocal cord thing. And I, so I don't know what this is, but I think it sounds pretty awesome. <laughs> it's like puberty all over again. You know, maybe, maybe, can guys get menopause? I'll call it menopause right now. I'm getting hot flashes. Now, in this section, we're going to look at Matthew chapter 20. Have I told you we're in Matthew 20 yet? That was all intro, by the way. That was the, we haven't even started. Matthew 20, we'll start in verse 1. Jesus is asked a question. Who is the greatest in the kingdom of heaven? That question is asked... In Matthew 18, Jesus spends the next two and a half chapters answering that question. And the way Matthew puts these stories together, this whole section is trying to answer that question. For instance, Jesus meets somebody who's rich, 
who's young, who's Jewish, and who's male. Those four things were the very definition of blessedness in the first century. And so this guy comes and he asks Jesus, what must I do to inherit life in the age to come? And Jesus gives him a very stock Jewish answer, and the man responds with a very stock Jewish answer. And then it comes around that actually to follow Jesus, he has to dispense with his wealth. And the man refuses and walks away. And then Jesus turns to his disciples and he says, I tell you, it's, it's really hard for rich people to get in. And, and that was so shocking to them because it was assumed rich people, by definition, were in. The riches were a sign of God's blessing. And to hear that, no, 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 you actually had to overcome being wealthy in order to enter into God's movement. I mean, that was shocking to them. And they said, well, who can be saved then if not these guys? And, and you remember Jesus says, well, it's impossible with humans, but with God, any, there, why were you laughing right there? This is, this is church. There's no fun here. My whole sermon chi is off now. <laughs> and so some of you are here and you're going, hey, can we get the guy we had last week back? I mean, he was, he was a nice guy. And he is, he's handsome. Uh, so they say, sir, where are you going? <laughs> sir, where are you going? What, what is going on? No, not you too? before you come in. <laughs> so they say to Jesus, if this guy's not in, who's in? And Jesus says, well, all things are possible with God. And then he says this. Thank you for coming back. And then he says, what do you got, a pen to take notes? Okay. I name you greatest in the kingdom of heaven. <laughs> for getting a pen to take notes. I don't know that I'll say anything worth writing down, but I appreciate your hopefulness. Now, Jesus is answering this question and you're confronted with somebody who's the very definition of blessedness and then Jesus ends that whole section by saying, the first will be last and the last will be first. Which is something he says a lot. And, 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 and so the parable we're gonna look at this morning actually uh, that statement, the first will be last and the last will be first, begins is like at the very front of the parable. It's actually not in the parable itself. It sets it up. And then it's said right at the end of the parable. And the reason that matters, guys, is because that's something called an inclusio. That means anytime in the Bible, like the same statement is, is said twice. That means whatever sandwich between those two statements is an example of what the statements are. So in other words, the first will be last and the last will be first. Well, I don't even know what that means because Jesus says it twice in this whole passage. The parable that's said between the two statements is intended to express what the statement itself means. Again, these are the story problems of philosophy and religion and ethics. What does it mean that the first will be last and the last will be first? Jesus now is gonna put that into real life by telling a parable. That was a really long introduction to Matthew chapter 20. And everyone said, 
Yeah, it was a really long introduction. Matthew chapter 20. I can't help that I'm in a good mood. Matthew 20, verse 1. For the kingdom of heaven is like a landowner who went out early in the morning to hire workers for his vineyard. He agreed to pay them a denarius for the day and sent them into the vineyard. About nine in the morning, he went out and saw others standing in the marketplace doing nothing. He told them, you also go and work in my vineyard and I will pay you what? Whatever's right. So they went. He went out again about noon and about three in the afternoon and did the same thing. About five in the afternoon, he went out and found still others standing around. He asked them, why have you been standing here all day doing nothing? Because no one has hired us, they answered. He said to them, you also go and work in my vineyard. Now, Jesus' parables always turn on a surprise. He defies the cultural explanations. Jesus will take very stock, routine Jewish images and twist them around And the point of this is to illustrate the first will be last and the last will be first. So Jesus says, listen, there's a landowner, it's harvest time, and there's a vineyard that needs harvesting. Back then, like today, you had day laborers. Back then, though, day laborers were the lowest of the lowest of the low on the economic ladder. Servants had steady work. Slaves had steady work. Day laborers were completely and utterly, when they would leave, you didn't have refrigerators. When they would leave in the morning, there would be barely enough food to get through the day. And they would, there was no promise they would come back with food that evening. It wasn't just that they were poor, but the humiliation that they would have of standing in the marketplace marked them as somebody who was poor. Not only that, but somebody who was humiliated in the process. And so, I mean, for those of you that have either been unemployed or are unemployed, you know that more than a paycheck is missing when, you're, when you don't have a steady job. And so for these folks, there was a humiliation attached to standing in the corner of the village marketplace. These folks were the most destitute. And so what happens is the owner shows up and the work day in those days was from six in the morning till six in the evening, sun up to sundown. And a very standard wage was something called a denarius. So if we just said like 100 bucks a day, I mean, it was just, it wasn't overly generous, but it was fair. It was just the going rate for day laborers in that day. Jesus tells a story about an owner of a vineyard who goes to the marketplace at six in the morning, at nine in the morning, at noon, at three, and then at five, one hour before quitting time. And he tells the story in such a way that the only people that were promised a specific amount of money were the people hired first. The six in the morning crowd, he promises to pay them a denarius. The nine, noon, and three o'clock crowds, he promised to pay them whatever is right. And the workers hired last. What's he say? He doesn't promise any payment. He just says, go work in my vineyard. Now, this is, this is kind of surprising imagery so far, but the surprises come in chapter uh, 20, verse 8. When evening came, the owner of the vineyard said to his foreman, call the workers and pay them their wages, beginning with the last ones hired going on to the first. Now, three surprises 
uh, in, this short, in this short paragraph. Surprise number one is we meet somebody called a foreman or an estate manager. Back in those days, the owner wouldn't, shouldn't have been the one going to the marketplace to hire. It should have been the estate manager. That becomes significant in a little bit. And if you're Jewish in an agrarian culture and you're listening to this, one of the things you're thinking is, my goodness, this was a really inefficient owner. I mean, you, an estate manager's job was to determine how many day laborers you needed at the beginning of the day. And so one of the things you'd be thinking is, well, how come he had to go back five times? That's just, that's awful. What a waste of the owner's time. Especially when you find out there was a, an estate manager who should have been doing it for you. That's surprise number one. Surprise number two is that the owner says to the estate manager, pay them all, and in Greek it says the wage, which is a denarius. Pay them all the same. And reverse the order of payment. Pay the ones who got their last first and pay the ones who were first last. Now, this didn't really go over well. Verse 9, the workers who were hired about five in the afternoon came and each received a denarius for one hour's work. So when those, who, when those came who were hired first, who'd worked 12 hours, they expected to receive more, right? I mean, if you're paying a denarius per hour, we should get 12. But each one of them also received a denarius. When they received it, they began to grumble against the landowner, right? They were complaining, and their complaints were three. These who were hired the last only worked one hour, and you paid them the same. You've made them equal to us. And we're the ones who have borne the heat of the day, the work in the heat of the day. Now, if you were paying attention last week, the objections of the older brother sound very similar to these. Jesus is going after a similar kind of heart here. And so these guys, and, and think about it. Now, this really becomes key. And I'm so sorry for my voice. It feels like Barry White without all the coolness. And, and but so think about it. the owner, if all the owner had to do was to pay the workers that were hired first, first, right? He would have given them their agreed upon denarius and they would have left. And then he could have paid the rest of them any amount he wanted to. But because he's flipped the order of payment, he's ensured that the workers that were hired first are going to be upset. Because he pays them all the same, contrary to their expectations. You're paying, really, one person who worked one hour the same as somebody who worked 12? What's fascinating is there is a Jewish parable that's very similar to this, where literally the, a king hires workers, and one of the workers works only two hours, gets paid, as the workers who, gets paid the same as the workers who worked all day, but the king says he worked so hard in those two hours, he deserved it. Now that whole idea of deserving is missing in this parable. It's literally Jesus just saying, hey, there's a landowner who decided to pay everybody the same and to rub it in the faces of those who are hired first. Right? He could have avoided it. All he had to do was pay the 12-hour workers first and then they would have left happy. But instead what he does is he pays the one-hour workers 
the same as the 12-hour workers. So they complain against him. And wouldn't you? I mean, human math says equal work equals equal pay. They were getting equal pay for unequal work. Now notice the landowner's response. Verse 13. But the landowner answered them, I am not being unfair to you, friend. Now the word friend here isn't a friendly word for friend. It, he, it means the one who is shouting. So it's kind of like, hey pal, you got what I promised you. That's kind of the tone. Didn't you agree to work a full day for a denarius? Polite answer, yes. So take your pay and go. I want to give the one who was hired last the same as I gave you. And then here's the point. Don't I have the right to do what I want with my own money? Or are you envious? Now the word envious that we translate it is the word evil eye. Or do you have an evil eye because I am generous? Now that euphemism means nothing to us. Back then though, it's an ancient Near Eastern euphemism that talked about seeing the world through the eyes of scarcity. So literally, your posture was to be stingy and to hoard. So Jesus says, it's not just envious, but it's like, it's, it's, it's incredibly tight-fisted. Are you envious because I'm generous? And then Jesus closes the parable. So, the last will be first and the first will be last. The second part of that inclusio we were talking about. What does it mean, Jesus, to be the greatest in the kingdom of heaven? Well, the last will be first and the first will be last. That doesn't clear it up, Jesus. Okay, let me tell you about a parable about a landowner who goes five times to the marketplace and every time brings back workers. Now the surprise is what motivated the landowner. In the beginning of the story, you just think he was inefficient. But by the end of the story, you recognize he was being compassionate. Because if all he wanted to do was to provide charity, those workers that were still there at five o'clock, he didn't have to give them a job. He just could have said, hey, here's a denarius. Here's a denarius. Here's a denarius. Here's a denarius. But instead, what does he give them? What does he give them? He gives them work. Self-respect. He removes the stigma of their humiliation, at least for that day. And he doesn't even promise a denarius. He just says, you're here? They say, well, we've been, no one's hired us. We've been standing here all day, meaning they wanted to work, ready to work, eager to work, but there was no work for them. So the landowner gives them what they really wanted, which is the dignity of returning home to their family, saying they'd received work and they received wages. So it's not inefficiency that motivates the landowner. It's compassion. That's Jesus' point. That's the surprise. And he wants to demonstrate the compassion against those who are going to be offended by it. Now, what's the lesson you take away from a story like this? Here's the big one. God's math is different than our math. My math, equal pay, equal work. You get what you deserve. God's math. The concept of deserving doesn't even apply. 
Did you see how significant that is? See, you don't believe that. I don't believe that. Because deserving is built into everything. I mean, we evaluate everything. You're graded, right? We, we seat in, in an orchestra according to giftedness. We label people all-stars. I mean, our entire world is built around deserving. And so Jesus shows up and says, yeah, 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 let me tell you about what the kingdom of heaven is like. The person that came in last has just as much a right to be here as the person that works all day. Deserving doesn't apply. Because God gives gifts, not wages. You get that? Because what's the wages of sin? Death. So if you want to talk deserving, there you go. So the great news is God takes deserving out of the whole equation. God's math is different from human math. A shepherd is a hundred sheep. He loses one of them. He leaves the 99 and searches for the one. Human math says that's bad shepherding. God's math says that's the heart of the Father to seek after the one. A woman drops two pennies in the temple treasury next to million dollar gifts. Human math says the million dollar gifts are more valuable. God's math says the woman that gave two pennies, that gift is more significant. Peter says to Jesus, well, how many times should I forgive my brother? Seven? And you have to understand, that was really magnanimous of Peter. Because standard rabbinic teaching of the day was three. You forgive three times for the same offense. Fourth time, you don't forgive. So Peter doubles that and then adds one to make it the perfect Jewish number seven. (laughs) And he's expecting applause from the Lord Jesus. And Jesus says, Seven? No, no, no. How about times 70? To a Jewish mind, that's just saying an infinite number of times. See, in my math, when somebody hurts me, I hurt them back. Somebody gets me, I get even. God's math. You forgive and keep forgiving. A woman takes a jar of perfume worth a year's wages and breaks it open and pours it over Jesus, and the disciples are disgusted with the waste. Human math says that's wasteful. God's math says that's worship. See, we really don't believe God works this way. Because for some of us, I mean, I was talking to a buddy last night who said, hey, I have a really hard time believing God gives grace to everybody else. I have a hard time believing he gives it to me. Because what's the invitation of a parable like this? Maybe you just received Jesus. Maybe, I mean, think, think about the thief on the cross for a second, right? The thief, Jesus is crucified next to two people, and thief isn't a strong enough word. They don't crucify petty criminals in the first century. They crucify revolutionaries. Okay, so this, this wasn't just some dude who was unlucky. This was a guy who was a big-time sinner and criminal. And all he says to Jesus is remember me when you come into your kingdom. He didn't give money. He didn't go to synagogue. He just acknowledged that, well, he was in a bit of trouble. And they're 
seemed to be something about this Jesus that was a bit unusual. And what's Jesus say? Today we'll be together in paradise. What? You mean you can live a crappy life and the last second before you die, pray to Jesus and he receives you? Yes. Now, for those of you tempted to play the last second before I die game, <laughs> let's just consider that for a moment. The last I checked, we weren't always going to know when that would be, right? And sin, ladies, bless you. She just walked. I've seen that view too many times in my dating relationships. So women just walking. What were we talking about, Rick? Grace, Jesus, see, you... Last minute card, oh, thank you. Okay, so you've got the whole scheduling problem when you play the last minute card. And then the bad news about sinning is that sinning forms you into a certain kind of person and if you give yourself over enough to it, you may never want to repent to begin with. So, I mean, God's grace is magnificent enough to receive those people, but if you're thinking, hey, that's a loophole, you've kind of missed the whole point of the Jesus thing. Because if you're secretly envious of people who get to do whatever they want and then slide in at the end, you really haven't understood Jesus. Because following him isn't a burden when you've tried everything else and you realize how enslaving it all is. Whether it's pride or ego or money or pleasure, whatever it is. You give yourself over enough times and get hollowed out enough by those things. You do get to understand what Jesus' yoke is like when he says that it's easy. And so, on the one hand, we have to say, to be faithful to the story and to this Jesus, deathbed conversions, absolutely. There is not one single human being beyond the realm of God's grace. And it seems to be the only requirement is the admission of your need for help. I mean, that seems to be it. I mean, you look at other, the great world religions and, and you say, okay, well, you've got reincarnation and karma and you've got the eightfold path of Buddhism and the pillars of Islam and some forms of Judaism and Christianity and, and central in them is climbing and earning and striving and working. And then this Jesus shows up and he scandalizes the Jewish community by making God's love unconditional. And by saying, hey, you want to know what it means to be the greatest in the kingdom of God? It's all a gift. There's no greatest. The first are last and the last are first. The word greatness doesn't apply in my kingdom because deserving doesn't apply in my kingdom. I mean, if the church really believed deserving was not a part of the equation, do you think we'd share the message a little differently? See, I think what I do, this parable is a parable of grace and a parable of judgment. There are some folks coming into our community, and I don't have permission to tell their stories, that are coming out of the most, the craziest backgrounds you can imagine. And they look at others in our community who've been following Jesus for decades. 
And they have to be convinced they're just as loved as those people. They have to be convinced that this is for them as much as for anybody else. They have to be convinced that their past has been put to death and no longer identifies them. And so we have to be a community. And if you're here, you're new to church, new to Jesus, do you understand the staggering nature of this parable is you don't deserve anything, and yet God gives everything. Because how big is grace? Is grace just accepting Jesus? No. Are you in t- have you done anything to deserve the next heartbeat? Have you done anything to deserve the fact that your synapses connect in a way that allows you to form words? Are you in charge at all of the exchange of carbon dioxide and oxygen in your lungs right now? Are you even aware of breathing? I mean, we've become so entitled. We've lost the sense that all is grace. We're not entitled to years. We're not entitled to families. We're not entitled to anything. He gives gifts, not wages. If he gave wages, we'd be toast. Literally. But instead he gives gifts. And so the people of God to wake up to the grace of God have to be the kinds of people who recognize the sheer goodness of every single bit of enjoyment you have. God gets credit for what it feels like to hold the hand of your spouse, to kiss their lips. He gets credit for ice cream. He gets credit for laughter. I mean, he gets credit for it all. And we're so twisted. We have equations in our mind. We're big fans of math, too. If I pray for my kids, they turn out okay. Right? If I give money to God, he gives money to me. I mean, that's kind of the rebate, the divine rebate sort of program. (laughs) And all of a sudden, our equations don't quite match up to the way God really works. In our fallenness, we question his goodness. And maybe the place where we begin to understand our God is the recognition that it's all grace. Deserving doesn't apply here. Not here. Not here. So it's a word of mercy. Because if you're here and you're new to this whole thing, you don't have to get right. You don't have to get cleaned up. You don't have to get it figured out. All you got to do is cry for help. That's it. Exactly. But it's also a parable of judgment. Because aren't many of us who are already in, don't we subtly begin to think we deserve to be here? I mean, don't you? I mean, I do. I, I, suddenly be, I, I subtly, excuse me, begin to think I deserve it more. And, and, I, and I hate to admit this, but I love to judge judgmental people. Which kind of contradicts itself, if you think about it. <clears throat> right? I mean, I, if you really, if people were to ask me, who are the people that I think don't deserve the fullness of God's blessing? Outside of Michigan, and outside of people who wear skinny jeans, and people who make skinny jeans, fourth on that list are... Um, Pastors who have affairs, who are in it for money, who manipulate. I mean, I, 
people that just sit in judgment over the entire world. I mean, I love judging those people. Which makes me as guilty as they are, right? So one of the things this, a parable like this confronts me with is when God says to me, don't I have the right to do with my grace whatever I want to? See, what this story confronts isn't why do bad things happen to good people? It's why do good things happen to undeserving people? Well, Jesus' answer is in my math, there is no undeserving. Or there's only undeserving. But in my math, oh no, no, there's a ranking, there's a hierarchy. I got scales and weights and measures. Justice operates according to very generalized and accepted accounting principles. But in God's math, it's a whole different ballgame. Do you really believe that? For you and for others. I mean, what would it be like if you really understood that God was this good? See, I always think of God. Here's the analogy I use. I feel like God, here's what life is to me. God gave me a very fast car, a very straight road, and told me to drive 55. And he sits by the side of the road in a CHP car <laughs> waiting to bust me when I go 56. That's what I feel like. That's, that has been my view of God. He gives us all these desires and then condemns us and loves condemning us. To get to the place where you actually believe that of all the pictures you could have of God, Jesus presents God as a lovesick father to two prodigal sons and as a landowner who keeps inviting others in and pays them the same. What happens when you really believe God's that good? Because we're not, we're not called just to be recipients of grace, but to just be dispensers, right? See, because we don't understand God's grace, we restrict it from other people. We mark people off. There are certain people, those people over there. Now, we never say it because, you know, we know the right answers. But deep down, we resent that they're shown favor. Took my wife out one date night to BJ's Pizza. Romance. I'm telling you what, gentlemen, take notes. <laughs> Thursday night football was on. <laughs> it was awesome. Got some pizza. Got a bazooki. And she's gluten-free, so she couldn't have it. <laughs> I said, well, honey, we can't let this go to waste, baby. I know, I know. It's awesome. <laughs> and, and so we're just kind of, we're minding our own business. And, and, and all of a sudden, and I love, I love going to the same restaurants over and over and over again to get to know the servers. Because I found one of the most socially acceptable ways to get to know people is, is when somebody, you're at a restaurant and somebody's serving you and just, and just saying, hey, I, tell me your story. And so I just love doing that. I extend meals a long time by doing those sorts of things. And so we'd gotten to know this particular server. And right at the end of the meal, the server comes over, and the server looks at us and says, hey, I've got really good news for you. Someone took care of your bill. Two thoughts crossed our mind. Number one, we should have gotten an appetizer. Number two... <laughs> I think my wife was the one that thought that. Number two, 
we start looking around to try to figure out who it is, right? And we couldn't figure it out because you want to thank them or pay, buy their meal or whatever. And, and who had the greatest joy in that whole thing? Well, obviously the person that paid was great. But think about how it would be to be a server whose job it was to just walk around and to say to people, your bill's been taken care of. I mean, that's a pretty good gig, right? Because, I mean, is anybody ever going to be not happy to see you? <laughs> see, because we don't understand God's grace, the news of Jesus isn't good news anymore. We've turned it into something it should never be. The first word isn't judgment. The first word is grace. Always. Except to the religious leaders. And if we're not a bit scandalized by the grace of Jesus, then we're not understanding it. Because he didn't restrict it. He didn't make you earn it. Earning didn't apply. So what would happen if a whole community of people decided the best way to be Jesus' people was to just go out and say, good news, your bills have been taken care of. Good news. Without any concept of deserving. Yeah, there was alienation. There was a debt. And... God himself paid it. Now, we don't push the metaphor too far, but would you be hesitant to share, if you were a server, would you be hesitant to share that with people? No way. That's awesome. And so when Jesus invites us into God's math, it's a whole new kind of math where deserving just doesn't apply. And what would it be like for a whole community to be convinced of that to the place where people just go, this really is good news. This is good news. Stand up with me, if you would. Close your eyes, if you would. God does his best work when your eyes are closed. Except when you're driving. It's our always, always got to state that just for the legalities. Close your eyes for a moment. I would imagine there are a few of us in a community like this who live under the shadow of condemnation and guilt, who live under the fear that God at some point is going to pour out his wrath, going to discipline, it's going to catch up to us because we got a whole big list of stuff we're bringing in. What would it be like to open yourself up to the idea that God isn't like that? Of course there's wrath. Jesus took it upon himself. We're not going to minimize that. But that isn't the first word. The first word is that all are loved, all are lost, all are welcome. The first word is that there's no restriction upon God's grace. There's no earning. There's no performing. All there is is receiving and trusting. And so brothers and sisters, you might be here and there's great news for you. Your bill's been paid. There isn't one single thing you can do to make God love you more. And not one single thing you can do to make him love you less. What would happen if you actually believed that? And maybe you're here and you're like me. You're a bit of a judge. Maybe the word that's spoken to us this morning is just a holy and loving and righteous God saying, are you envious because I'm generous? Don't I have the right to do with my grace whatever I want to? As the one who's paid the bills? 
And so maybe there's a bit of repentance on our lips this morning. Maybe there's the recognition that we have marked some people or kinds of people off. And maybe the best posture that we should take is the recognition that deserving no longer applies. And so we just want to sing these truths over you for a moment.